glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. John chapter 1, a well-known text of Scripture, and it's going to deal with who Jesus is, no doubt. Uh, the beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and you'll notice in your Bible that is capitalized. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So who the Bible here and who John is calling the Word is obviously our Creator. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now if you go down to verse 14... It says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In 1 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, let me say this. There's much religion in our world that teaches man how to try to become God teaches man how to try to obtain the righteousness of God through uh, either religious uh, rites and performances or through good deeds or being moral the best you can and believes that man has within himself the ability to do that. But God's plan is not that man would become God, but God became man. That's quite different, by the way. One is a form of exaltation. If man can become God, we can exalt ourselves to deity. We can exalt ourselves to a position of righteousness where we have so corrected our sinful nature that we and God are on the same page now. That's, that's humanism. It's the religion of our day. It's packaged in many forms. But there's two kinds of religion. There's religion that's based on faith in God and religion that's based on faith in man. That's, that's, that's really what it boils down to. Uh, and in Scripture, the Bible way is that God became man. Now, that is someone humbling themselves. If man can become God, or at least as good as God, that is exaltation. That's satanic. When, if man can exalt himself to the position that God is in so that we are fit to dwell with God uh, for all eternity because we're righteous, then that's based in pride. But when God, who didn't have to, became man so that he might redeem us, that is the fact that Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Man does not exalt himself through pride. Man is redeemed through God having humbled himself and coming to us in flesh. That's what Christmas is about. God taking on the form of man, the Word becoming flesh. God manifest in the flesh. So having said that, I just want to establish that the Bible gives us a picture that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Zacharias said it this way, that God hath visited his people. So God was in heaven looking down on men, and even as he had visited the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11, there came a time where God said, now I'm going to go and visit mankind. And he visited us for a singular purpose, and that is to save us from our sins. That's why Jesus is called Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. So we, we, I think this, the, the folks in this room most likely are very familiar with why he came. But may I say today, in an age of humanism, many use Jesus to say, and by the way, humanism's not new. It was obviously around when Jesus was on earth because of some of the things he had to deal with. 
there are many misconceptions and misperceptions of why the Lord Jesus Christ came. And by the way, if we can rule out some of the common ideas of why he didn't come, it might lead us to the exclusive reason as to why he did. I believe that's his purpose. And so then, go now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. There are many today, I fear, and I don't want to just carry on like that, many today, many today, but it's a truth. The Lord told us that many false prophets would go out into the world, many false teachers, and so there are many today who preach against righteousness. Isn't that an amazing thing? I was doing some study for the Sunday school lesson taught this morning on the history of the Bible, and you'll find that there are some Bible translators who said if the reading of the text lends toward piety, be suspicious, because pious people probably put that in there to try to encourage people to be more pious, meaning to be more godly or righteous in their conduct. It's probably a suspicious uh, reading of the text and should be uh, suspected as not being legitimately from God. That idea that somehow God has changed his mind under grace about the demands and the requirements of his righteous nature is something that has grown popular again in our period of time where there's those who belittle the righteousness expressed in the law of God. May I say this? The righteousness that's expressed to the law that God gave to the nation of Israel is still righteous. The law is good. How many of us can agree that it's good not to steal? Can we agree that it's good not to covet and not to commit adultery? And not out of covetousness to work yourself into the grave or those under your care into the grave. You know, the Sabbath was very much about giving rest to your animals, giving rest to people who serve, giving rest to your own body so you could keep working, so you could honor God. How many of us agree that's a good concept? How many of us agree not to steal your neighbors? It's a good thing not to steal your neighbor's wife and commit adultery. And it's a good thing when children honor their father and mother. I didn't say it's a natural thing. I said it's a good thing. So the, you've worked, we're going through some of the Ten Commandments. The law of God is good. It's right. It is, a, it is a set of commandments that tells us how to respond to Him and how to respond to each other. And we are very good at breaking them. He tells us to love Him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are born loving self. It's the truth. That's why we covet. That's why we steal. That's why we kill. That's why we commit adultery. Because we love ourselves and hate others. But the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not to make any graven images, meaning don't replace the Creator with something He created. Don't love His gifts instead of loving the giver. But boy, do we not? (laughs) Of course we do. That's why the commandment is there, to reveal we have a problem. God did not give His law as a means to obtain righteousness, but to reveal that we are not righteous. The law, Galatians says, is a schoolmaster to bring us to God. But there are those today who think that Jesus came to disparage the righteousness of the law. So the first thing I want you to know this morning is Jesus did not come to this earth to discredit or disparage righteousness. He did not come to discredit or disparage righteousness. The righteousness of God is still righteousness. God still wants us to love Him with all the heart and soul and mind and strength. And He still wants us to love our neighbor as ourself. But He says that to reveal to us we're not what we're supposed to be. Without a law, there would not be the revelation of our sin. Matthew chapter 5, the Bible says in verse 17, the Lord Jesus is getting ready to give 
some definition to the law. So he's going to not only give the letter, he's going to communicate the spirit of the law. How many of us understand the spirit of the law versus the letter? So uh, let's say one of my children is at home and they fall and cut themselves terribly and they gash their leg open and I'm concerned they're going to bleed to death and I've put some pressure on that wound and throw them in the car and the speed limit on my gravel road is 35 and it's hard to go faster than that without dying because of the potholes. But I'd find a way if we're on our hospital, on the way to the hospital. And let's say we, we're zooming into the hospital and I'm doing 45 on that road. Am I breaking the letter? I am, but the Spirit is saving life. Is it not? The spirit of the law is to save life. And what Jesus would come, and that's one example, what Jesus would come to do uh, is to say, may I say this, the letter of the law is 35. So when I'm driving, I've got to go 35, don't I? Or if it's snowing, can I slow down? Because the spirit of the law is to save life, right? You get a hold of what, the, what God is, the spirit of the law, and the Lord, the Lord Jesus will do this in Matthew 5. I just want to say this because he's going to preface what he's about to say in Matthew 5. He's going to say, you have heard that it was said, by them of old time thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, if you hate your brother without a cause, if you, if you curse him and say, thou fool, you're guilty already of murder. And I'm paraphrasing. You can read it right there in Matthew 5. What he's saying is the letter is don't actually physically take his life, but the spirit is don't despise him and hate him in your heart. And he says, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Those, those examples illustrate what he's going to say in verse 17. I didn't come to destroy or do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. I did not come to discredit the righteousness. I came to communicate and reveal the righteousness that the law demands. And to give that to mankind. So Matthew 5, 17, he says, Think not, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. He's talking about the scripture. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And I think those, those words are not too hard to understand. The idea of destroy is, again, to disparage, discredit, do away with, uh, to, uh, um, uh, to, to the point that you mutilate it. And he says, I'm not against the law. I'm going to say some things to you, but I came to fulfill the law. Meaning, the law required an ideal. When you read the law of God, you say God was looking for people to be perfect. And in the law, he had to incorporate what you do when you fail to live up to his standards. In the law were sacrifices that had to be offered if you sinned through ignorance or if you sinned willfully. Some breaking of the law would cost you your life. Some breaking of the law would cost you an animal sacrifice. Uh, but the fact is you had to do something to acknowledge, I have not lived up to God's standard of righteousness, so I must offer a sacrifice. Something will die in my place. Blood will be shed because I have sinned against God. And that took place all through the Old Testament. And as you read the Old Testament, how many of you, if you, if you read through your Bible regularly, I was talking to my children about this the other day. If you're reading through your entire Bible regularly, I encourage you to read Old and New Testament. You know one of the reasons I encourage that? You can get depressed reading Old Testament only. It's dark. It is God saying, this is what I want you to do. This is my expectation. And man sinning and failing to do it. And God's saying again, this is what I want you to do. He gives them a law. You walk through the history of Israel. He gives them a land. He gives them a law. He gives them commandments. And they break them. And they rebel. And they get sold into captivity. And the prophets come. And they say, God's going to judge you and punish you for your disobedience. And then God does. And then in the midst of those law and prophets, there's always a glimmer of hope. Moses said, one day the prophet will come. 
and you got to hear him. If you hear not him, you'll be judged. Uh, David would speak of his offspring and how one day uh, he would come and the uh, king would reign forever. And uh, even even uh, the old false prophet uh, Balaam prophesied of a star that would rise in the east and a scepter would come out of Jacob. There was a prophecy that one day a king would come and redeem Israel from all of its folly and sin. And Jesus is saying, I am that. The law and the prophets put before the people of God an ideal of righteousness and a requirement for failing to meet that righteousness and the promise that gave them hope for that righteousness and Jesus fulfilled it all. And if our concept of the Lord Jesus Christ today is that He came to disparage or discredit the righteousness that God demands, that would be an incorrect understanding. He did not come to say, Uh, The law is unrighteous. He came to say the law is righteous and I am the fulfillment of it. And so the first thing Jesus did not come to do is to discredit or disparage the righteousness of God. He did not come to destroy the scripture. He came to fulfill it. Number two, he did not then come to defend our rebellion. Jesus did not come to defend our rebellion. Rebellion In John chapter 6, let me see if I can find my place there. In John chapter 6, I believe it is, the Lord Jesus is speaking about what he came to do. I failed to write this one down, so I may not be able to find my place. But it's along the same lines of what we're reading in Matthew chapter 5. So if I can't find my place in John 6, bear with me. John chapter 6. Verse 38. Jesus said, For I came down from heaven. Here it is, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So he says, here is not why I came. I did not come to do mine own will. Now, I understand that Jesus is God, but he is also man. And as man, he said, I do not live my life the way I want. Now, nothing will make another rebellious person feel more comfortable than another rebellious person. Am I correct? When you're rebelling against God, there's nothing more consoling than someone else that's doing the same thing. And many think, and I heard a man say this one time, that he's out on left field someplace. I don't know that anybody in this room would believe this. But Jesus was just a rebel. That's what he said. He was just a rebel. Meaning he defied cultural norms. And I'll tell you what, he defied the Pharisees and their self-righteousness. He did do that. But there was not one moment of our Lord and Savior's life that he lived according to his own will. Never did he live his life doing just whatever he wanted And I use this point to say he did not come to defend our rebellion by joining us in it. He did not come to discredit or disparage the righteousness of God and coupled with that is then he did not come to console us in our rebellious state. He did not come to make us feel better as sinners. He came to call sinners to repentance. This is where we're going to get in just a minute. He did not come to defend rebellion nor to cause us to dismiss our responsibility to God. So he didn't come to disparage and discredit righteousness. He did not come to defend rebellion, as we see in John chapter 6, verse 38 there. He did not come to dismiss our responsibility toward God. He came rather, of course, to call us to repentance. And so then he says, I'm going to read a number of verses. Go to Matthew chapter 9, if you would. Matthew chapter 9. You go back to verse 10. And this, this statement is made a number of times throughout the New Testament, especially the Gospels here. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? 
And when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Here's the statement. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now may I say this. This word has become extremely unpopular for a host of reasons in our day, but it's a Bible word. One of the primary ministries of Jesus Christ is to bring men to repentance. And here's why. Because we do disparage the righteousness of God. We do discredit the righteousness of God. We do rebel against the will of God. We do, knowing the will of God, often do the opposite of the will of God. And Jesus came in fulfilling the righteousness of God in not defending our rebellion by that very truth came to call us to repentance to say, you're wrong. In not obeying God, you're wrong. In disobeying God, it's sin. Uh, it is not, we may say it's natural. It may be natural, but it's still sin. It may be as natural. Look, if a thief, if a, if a child is raised in the home of two thieves, I guarantee what that kid's going to grow up doing. Thieving. You say, well, that's what he was taught to do. It's in his nature. That is correct, but it's still wrong. It's still sin. There's criminal activity that you can trace back through generations of time, and there's only one person who has the power to break the shackle of that sin, whether individually or generationally, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning there are those who think that Jesus came to console us in our sinful state, leave us in that sinful state, and make us feel better in that. May I say that's not why He came. He did not come to disparage righteousness. He did not come to defend our rebellion. He did not come to dismiss our responsibility. He came to call us to repentance to say, when God has told you to do something and you did not, you were the one that was wrong. And first and foremost, he reproves us and calls us to repentance by his own righteousness. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Meaning he faced every temptation to sin that you and I have as far as the points of temptation the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He was lured by all of those and never yielded, not once. Now, if it's right to yield, then he would have yielded. By his not yielding and fulfilling the righteous demands of the law, you know what he's doing? Calling us to repentance. Repentance is to change one's mind by faith in God's word so that I agree with God against myself. If I went before a judge, let's say this Christmas my family was hungry, we had no food in the fridge, no food in the freezer. In fact, we had no freezer and we had no fridge. And boy, we're starving, hungry, and I know that my neighbor has more than he can handle. And I said, you know what? I'm going to play Robin Hood. He's got more than he needs. I have less than I need. I'm going to start believing in communism. I'm going to go take a little of what he has and tell him that he owes it to me. <laughs> right? I go and I grab some meat out of his freezer while he's not looking and I grab some silverware out of his drawer while he's not looking and why, my goodness, I grab a few other things along the line and when I do, I get caught and carried for a judge and he says, you've been charged with, uh, with theft. How do you plead? And I say, not guilty, Your Honor. He says, does those things belong to you? And I say, they do now. He said, no, did you buy them? Did you work for them? I say, no, but I don't think he did either. 
I think he was born into privilege. I think he has things he doesn't deserve. And I start excusing taking something that didn't belong to me. And the judge lays down the letter of the law and he says, here how your theft is defined in the law. Did you or did you not do that? I say, Your Honor, I don't agree with your interpretation of my behavior or of the law. I'm not repentant. Am I? <laughs> I start defending my actions. I start doing all these things. And finally the, the judge says, look, I'm going to take a few minutes to try to help you if you'll listen to me. And he starts explaining to me and reasoning with me how it is wrong in the sight of God for me to do what I've done. And all of a sudden, I begin to believe the judge's reasoning more than mine. I begin to believe that what he's saying is actually true and accurate and that my own excuse-making in my own mind is folly. And I say, you know what, Your Honor, you're right. I'm a fool and I'm wrong and I've hurt that man and I can't pay him back, but you tell me what i got to do and I'll do it. Judge says, today the court's going to give you some mercy. Now, you're going to have to make some restitution. But you know what happens is when I agree with that judge, and he's right and I'm wrong, that's repentance. Listen to me this morning. As long as you and I are excusing disobedience to God, we are not repentant. I don't care what the reasoning is. Well, I can't help it. I'm young. Listen, young people, many young persons say, I can't help it. I'm young. You may, it may be as natural to sin for you as breathing, but it's still sin. Well, I'm old. <laughs> I don't care anymore. Still sin. Anything that is in disobedience to the known will of God, or even I don't know it's the will of God and it's the will of God, and it's in my life that's in disagreement and disobedience to His will is sin. The Bible says sin is the transgression of the law. Meaning when I disobey... So when I bear false witness against my neighbor... Let this. Here's what we think false witness is like this. Do you know I saw Samuel last week um, trying to slice his brother's tires... Now, that's not true. I didn't see that, but I could say that. Here's what I could do. I could bear false witness of him in a more subtle way. I could say, you know, that's Samuel, and I could plant seeds of, oh, unkindness in your mind against him by suggesting maybe he did things. I don't know it, but I think maybe he might. Do we not bear false witness against our neighbors on a regular basis? Slander, gossip, you name it. We do these things. You know what it is? It's sin. James 4, 17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. God's definition of sin is a little different than ours, isn't it? The Bible says in Proverbs, the thought of foolishness is sin. Yikes! You know what we're prone to do? Good night, that means everybody's sinners. Ah, point well taken. Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who in this room can say, I've never broken any of God's commandments? Not one. There's none good. Not one. Here's what I'm saying. Some think that Jesus came to console us in our sinful state and leave us in such a state. No, friend, he came to call us to repentance. Mark 2.17 says, When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We'll come back to these verses in a few moments. In Luke 5.32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He did not come, by the way, to dismiss our responsibility or to, uh, to, to confirm our righteousness. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. They don't need me. It's sinners who need a Savior. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. So if you're not ungodly this morning, He didn't die for you. The Bible says, uh, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for the righteous. He died for sinners. He died for those who have 
failed to meet God's righteous standards as he has met them. May I say this, the measuring stick on judgment day is not going to be your past self. Well, I'm better than I used to be. That's not the measuring stick. The measuring stick is not going to be your neighbor. The Bible says in Acts 17, he will judge us by that man, Jesus Christ. Meaning the measuring stick on judgment day is going to be Jesus Christ. This is righteousness. He's called Jesus Christ the righteous. And if I'm not as righteous as Jesus, I'm not good. You say, that's impossible. Point well taken. We cannot save ourselves. We must have his righteousness given to us or we won't be righteous at all. And so then he did not come to disparage or discredit righteousness. He didn't come to defend rebellion. He didn't come to establish the righteousness of men. He did not come to dismiss us from our responsibilities toward God. He did not come to destroy those that are ruined by sin. See, we might if we stopped here, we might say, well, good night. If God's righteousness stands and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and He's the measuring stick and he didn't, He's not going to come and dismiss our responsibility to be righteous, He's calling us to repentance, then we're kind of in trouble. But He makes it very clear. He did not come to destroy men's lives. He didn't come to destroy those ruined by sin. He came to save. Luke 9.56, the Bible says, For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now let's go back to Luke 9. I want to read that in its context because some disciples had gotten out of kilter with the purpose of their Savior. Many of you here this morning are saved. Jesus Christ is your Savior. And when you see people around you who are ruined by sin, you know what we want to do? Call down the lightning. I was talking to a very dear preacher friend of mine the other day. He's older than me. He's a mentor to me in a lot of ways. And he said, you know, he said, I don't know what I'm going to do in the Millennial Kingdom. He said, I don't know. Uh, He said... I don't really want to rule over a nation. I don't want to rule a city. He said, but I am going to ask the Lord to have permission to operate lightning for that thousand years. And I laughed because I know him. I thought, man, I hope you're not in charge of lightning. <laughs> Luke chapter 9. That's what James and John wanted. Luke chapter 9. Christians, sometimes this morning we forget. We forget. And I'm not, I am not, we've already established Jesus did not come to defend our rebellion. But he also didn't come to destroy lives. He will come again and judge. But he didn't come the first time to destroy. He came to save. He came to lift people out of lives of sin. May I remind you this morning, sin ruins people. You know why God hates sin? Some people think this. Because God loves me, he doesn't mind my sin. Because God loves you, he hates your sin. You see, to excuse sin is to excuse destruction in the life of a person. Sin always ruins whatever it touches. Luke chapter 9, uh, the Bible says in verse 46, excuse me, go down to verse, um, go down to verse uh, 51. And it came to pass uh, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come. Why didn't he come? He didn't come to destroy men's lives. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Sometimes we see people living in sin and they offend us. Do they not? If you're living for Christ, people living in sin are going to be opposing you. Sometimes we see people that are obstinate against Christ. 
They say, I don't want anything to do with that. And I don't want anything to do with you. Well, I'll tell you one day they're going to burn and they'll get everything they deserve. That may be true, but that's not why Christ came. Can I ask you a question this morning? Those of you who know you're saved, are you glad that God did not lick you up with fire the first time you rejected his son? How many of you received him the first time you heard of him? Not one. Are you glad that the first time you heard the... How many of you remember the first time you heard the gospel pricking your conscience and knew you needed to respond to Jesus Christ and thought, "Ah, I don't think so. Some of you were living steeped in sin and you weren't ready to leave that and you knew Christ would pull you out of it. And you loved your sin more than you loved the Savior. You wanted your sin more than you wanted salvation. By the way, that's what keeps people from getting saved. It's not intellectual, it's spiritual. And so my point is this. Aren't you glad God didn't turn down judgment the first time it was deserved? How many of you are glad that God has not yet dealt with the United States of America as a whole according as we have dealt with His Son? As a nation, we've treated His Son like a religious leader. We've treated His Son like a nice concept when He's the living Son of God, our Creator. I'm glad God is merciful. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to destroy lives. He came to save them. Some of you says if Christ gets hold of your life, He'll destroy it. If you let Christ run your life, he'll probably send you off to Africa as a missionary or something. He didn't come to destroy your life. He came to save it. Amen? In all of eternity, you'll be glad you put your faith in Christ. I'm trying to say this. He did not come to discredit righteousness or disparage it. He didn't come to defend rebellion. He didn't come to dismiss our responsibility to God. He did not come to destroy those that are ruined by sin. He did not come to demand that we reverence and regard him. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. The Lord Jesus did not come to get. He came to give. Matthew chapter 10. These last couple of points establish the fact that he leaves our will intact. He came to to call us to repentance that he might save us from sin... He did not come to dismiss our responsibility to God or disparage righteousness, but to fulfill that righteousness and grant it to us if we'll receive it. But he does not come to be ministered to. He came to minister. Matthew chapter 10. Uh, The Bible says, uh, let's back up just a little bit. It says in, um, I'm in the wrong place. That is not Matthew 20. Forgive me. Matthew chapter 20. Read my own writing incorrectly. On typing, it's bad. You can't read type notes. Matthew chapter 20. In verse... I want to back up and put this in context. Let's go back to verse 20. We'll read down through verse 28. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall indeed drink, of, uh, you shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. 
But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, listen, and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, I did not come to get. I did not come so that I could have a better life. Or I did not come at this time. His first coming was not about establishing His kingdom on earth. His disciples are scurrying around thinking that Jesus is the ticket to a better life. That if He's the king and I'm on His right hand and on His left, we'll have servants attending to us. Our life will be easier. Our life will be richer. Our life will be of greater comfort. And He said, I want you to understand that's not why I came. There's a twofold application this morning. If you've not let the Lord Jesus minister eternal life to you, that's why He came. Minister means giving. Eternal life is not something that He demands you take. It is something He offers you freely. He came and He purchased it with His blood on the cross, with His death on in your place and in mine. He did not come to get. Many times we think we want the Christian life because that's going to get people... It'll make life better. His disciples got all caught up in that mentality. Again, they did not understand why He came. Let me say this, if I'm going to be a disciple this morning, it's not going to get a bunch of people to be my ministers or my servants. It's not going to elevate me to a place of greatness. It's going to make me a servant to all. To the unbeliever, I'm a servant by ministering the gospel. To the believer, I'm a servant by ministering God's Word or whatever spiritual gifting God has given me. And so then he did not come to demand service, to demand to be ministered to. By the way, he could, couldn't he? He's king of kings. He could say, bow and make people do it, but he didn't come. He came in his, this is what meekness is all about. He had the greatness, the power, the righteousness and authority to elevate himself above everyone and demand that we bow. But instead he laid his life down that we might be exalted with him one day. Now friend, that's the heart of our Savior. He did not come to be ministered to. He came to minister. So He did not come to demand reverence or regard. He came to offer eternal life. And then finally, and this one gets gets us in trouble now to Matthew 10, if you would. He did not come to deepen relationships. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus did not come merely to deepen human relationships. The purpose of Jesus' coming was not to make better marriages. Now, if he has his proper place in husband and wife, it'll make a better marriage. He did not come to deepen the relationship of parents and children. If parents and children respond the same to the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll have a good relationship. Now, this is, this is some of the plainest text in Scripture. This is not why he came. He did not come simply to deepen human relationships. Matthew chapter 10, uh, the Bible says, Let's back up once again and put this in context. He says in verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now you notice two responses to Jesus. Some will confess him. Confess means I've repented at his call. I agree with him about who he is. I agree with God about who he is. And I, to confess means to acknowledge in agreement with after something's been stated. So if, uh, if someone said today, um, are you a United States citizen? And you said, I am. 
and then you held up your identification that proved that you were truly a United States citizen, the person that asked you would say, I confess this person is a United States citizen. They are acknowledging a fact by confessing. There are those who confess Jesus Christ. There are those who say, I agree with God. The credentials are in place. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is my creator and my savior at the same time. I agree with God that outside of faith in him, there is no salvation. Neither is there uh, salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12, that's what God says. When I confess Jesus Christ, I say, God is right. I believe Him. I believe that without Jesus Christ, I'm in my sin. There's no hope for me. But I believe that by faith in Him, I am forgiven and I am a child of God. I confess Jesus Christ or I can deny Him. I can disagree with Him. I can oppose Him. There's one of two responses. So verse 33, But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not, verse 34, that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's in fulfillment of Micah 7, verse 6. Verse 37, he says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. There are many who preach and teach a Jesus today that simply came to deepen human relations. Not why he came, friend. He came to bring us to a conclusion point in regard to our relationship with Almighty God. Jesus came as the representative of God to say and offer to us conditions of peace. Someone say there's contradiction in the Bible. The angel said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. You know what the context of the angel's message was? God is offering peace between himself and man through Jesus Christ. The Bible says Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross meaning the things that were against us and on our account, our sins against God, have been fully dealt with and paid for through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Peace has been made through His sacrifice. All that is required of us, Jesus has offered. So He comes to us representing the righteousness of God. And He's willing to represent us to God as man. He's God and He's man. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But I'm trying to say this today. If our concept of Jesus is that He came to make society a peaceful place, then He terribly failed. There are family members today that won't speak over how they respond to Jesus Christ. Some of you are experiencing that in your life. You've confessed Him. They've denied Him. Unless we think of denying mean they say we don't believe in Him at all. You know what? There comes a point where we either have to agree with Him or repent at His call. <laughs> we either have to say He's right or say He's wrong. There are family members that are divided, homes divided, husbands and wives, children and parents, siblings and siblings, divided over what? Over Christ. He said, think not that I came to bring peace, but a sword. He said, I I will be the divider in human relations. You may be related by blood, but how you respond to me will determine whether or not you stay 
in a peaceable relation with each other. You see, peace on earth, goodwill toward men was about peace between God and men. He's not talking about peace between God and men. He's talking about peace between men and men. He said, you're going to have to make a choice. This is the conclusion of the message. He said, I came not to disparage righteousness, but to fulfill it. I came to demonstrate righteousness. I came to show you what righteousness is. Jesus Christ is God's expectation of man. You and I can't produce it. We can only accept it. The Bible says, but as many as received him, John 1, 12, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him, meaning don't put trust in you, put trust in Him. He is the righteousness of God manifest in a body. He is everything God expects. He did not come to disparage righteousness. He came to demonstrate it. He did not come to disparage righteousness. He came to fulfill its demand. That's why He gave Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and it's with his stripes we're healed. He did not come to defend our rebellion. He came to call us to repentance. So he came to give his life a ransom, the Bible says. We just read. He gave his his life and his body as a ransom price for our sins to buy us out of sin, out of prison, to to redeem us. The Bible says uh, in in Ephesians chapter 1, let me turn there, verse 7. Colossians 1, uh, 14 says almost the same thing. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in whom we have redemption. So a ransom is a price paid to buy someone out of bondage. Redemption is when the price has been paid and they're bought out. It says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He came not to defend our rebellion, but to call us to repentance because He came not to destroy lives, but to save them. Repentance and faith in Him is the only way that He can save us. He's done everything necessary, but if we'll not confess Him, say, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And He says, confess Him before men. The Bible says in Romans 10, let me turn there quickly as we conclude this morning, meaning He brings us to a point of decision. He did not come to deepen human relationship. He came to repair our relationship with the divine. Meaning, Jesus Christ is the, is the, is, he's the chief cornerstone. You'll either stumble over him or you'll agree with him. You'll either get on him or he'll fall on you is what the Bible says. And so, uh, we, we look over here. John, is that where I said to go? Romans 10, excuse me. Romans 10. Forgive my absent mindedness this morning. Romans chapter 10. We'll read a, a whole number of verses in Romans 10, and we'll wrap up. Romans chapter 10, very well-known uh, scriptures. But Romans chapter 10, verse uh, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. What's the next phrase? To everyone that believeth. To everyone that believeth. You see, he came to fulfill the righteousness of the law in his life and in his death and resurrection, and he did. He came to call us repentant to repentance, to acknowledge we have offended God through our sin and we need forgiveness, but He came to give that. But we must make a decision. And listen to me now. The world will be divided over the decision they make over the righteousness of God in Christ. He is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. Verse 5, Romans 10. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Meaning... 
You don't only live by the law if you keep the whole thing. If you can keep all of the law without ever breaking it, that's how you get life from the law. Verse 6, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt, what's it say next? Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know what it means to confess Christ before men? Someone says, So what of you? Are you right with God? Yes, I am. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Him alone. If you are in heaven today, the answer as to why every human being that's there would be the same. How did you get here? By Jesus Christ. How did you get? You know, if you ask Abraham, how, why, how are you here? Didn't you lie one time about your wife? He says, no, I lied twice. <laughs> Didn't you act in unbelief and not trust God? He said, I did. Well, then why are you here? Because... Of the Redeemer. You remember when I offered my son and God gave a ram in his place? That was a picture of Jesus and he has fully paid my sin debt. He's there by faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham is there by faith. Noah is there by... Noah, weren't you drunk one time? I was. Drunkards don't go to heaven. I'm not drunkard anymore. I'm a forgiven drunkard. I'm a saint. Christ died for my drunkenness. What are you doing here, Lot? You're a rotten scumbag. Why are you here? And he says, the same reason you're here, by God's almighty grace. No other reason. Jesus Christ. That's why the song in heaven's not going to be, worthy are we. The song is going to be, worthy is the lamb that was slain. There will only be one way into heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. He didn't come to disparage righteousness. He came to fulfill it. He didn't come to defend our rebellion. He came to call us to repentance. He didn't come to destroy the ruined and sin. He came to save us. But we must do the right thing with Him. He is the end of the righteousness, which is by faith, uh, the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. Let me ask this. If I told you, and this is how simple believing is. Believing is not complicated. God says something and we take Him at His word. God says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do we believe him? God says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, meaning if you will acknowledge outwardly that you believe inwardly what I say about my son, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I like that language. It's not you might He says, if you will believe me concerning my son, Jesus Christ, I'll save you from what you deserve. Now, by the way, if I'm repentant, I know what I deserve. My dad taught me to answer. Some of you are aware of this. When people say, how you doing? Say, better than I deserve, because it's a fact. Is it not? So a young lady in the store the other day, I go out, she said, how you doing today? I said, better than I deserve. Man, she snapped her head. She said, is that right? I said, it's absolutely right that I'm better than I deserve. I left and gave her a gospel track and I said, this will explain why I'm doing better than I deserve. And it's true for every one of us. 
if I think that I deserve better than what I'm getting, my perspective's wrong. I deserve the judgment of God for my sins against Him. But the Lord Jesus took my place. Now my question is this. When did you in your heart believe what God has said about His Son? He said He's your Creator. He says that in Him, Jesus said this in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Again, Acts 4, 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Do I believe that? If I do, when have I said so? When have I said, Lord, I believe you? And then been willing to tell people, I believe concerning Christ. I trust him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the only way of salvation. Have you confessed him before men? (laughs) Now, you can go around saying that and not believe in your heart, and that's not going to save you. It's not words that save you. It's belief. But what is truly in the heart inevitably is going to come out of the mouth. Amen? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. I don't know where you stand with the Lord this morning. You may be here and you know you've sinned against God. And you know that you owe Him a debt. And you know that you don't deserve for Him to accept you into His presence and let you into heaven one day. You may be unsettled on your eternity living in fear of death because you don't know what's coming next. But the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way, He didn't just come, as we've seen, to make life better. He came to reconcile you and I to God. He paid His life a ransom to redeem us that we might be reconciled to God. When we've sinned against someone, do we act normal around them? No, it bugs our conscience. When we've sinned against somebody, you know what we often do? We hide from them. You know what a lot of people's behavior, you know how it can be explained? They know God's unhappy with them. They know it. They know in their conscience that God is not pleased with their thoughts, desires, words, and actions, and they are disturbed about what's going to happen when they meet Him. But today, Christ has already taken care of that. He did not come to destroy. He did not come to call you on the carpet and lick you up in the flames of hell or He'd already done it. He came to save you. Perhaps this morning you're here and that's why you're here is because the living God who made you is trying to save you. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. I believe He is still using preaching today and teaching and examples of godly people to, to show you you need a Savior and who it is. There's only one person can save you this morning from your sin, and that's Jesus Christ. Your job is to believe God's Word on it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. Meaning, take the penalty for your own sin, but have everlasting life. Have you believed God concerning that? You may be here this morning and you've not yet let Him save you. I encourage you to believe God. Let Christ save you. We'll have a song of invitation in a moment. If you want to speak to somebody about that, you can come during that song and just indicate that to me. We can speak after church or get someone to speak to you. But don't leave here with that unsettled. Christian, this morning, do we get confused about why He came? Did He come to give us lightning power? Did He come so we could be ministered to and be big dogs? Or did He come to minister? So if He's got control of us, what's He doing with us? Setting us up to be ministered to or setting us up so we can minister? Ah, there it is.